Right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Ricky Burdett, and I'm a professor of urban studies here at the LSE. And I'm delighted to uh, moderate, to chair uh, this evening on Cities for a Small Continent, uh, which is really about uh, a 10-year project, which has come to fruition in this wonderful publication uh, written by Anne Power with Bruce Katz, both of the authors are here, as are some of the major participants uh, in terms of the cities that are represented and analyzed uh, in this publication. I'll come to that in a moment. Just some uh, housekeeping rules. Uh, first thing, could you make sure that your mobile phone is on silent, um, but use the hashtag, which is over there that you can see behind me, uh, <coughs> hashtag LSE City, LSC City Recovery. Uh, I want to start by doing the right thing, which is to thank the organizations that made this whole event, in fact, the research project, possible. And that's the La Fabrique de la Cité, a think tank based in Lille, which is uh, uh, interested in and supportive of initiatives such as this one, which bring uh, innovative thinking around cities. And, of course, uh, the whole team at LSE uh, uh, Communities and, uh, sorry, Housing and Communities uh, which has been responsible with Anne, and so many of her colleagues are here who've been behind this event and the whole research project. We want to thank them uh, right at the advance. There are also probably hundreds, Anne, of uh, urban experts who've been involved in one way or another that want to be thanked, but we're not going to list them here. Now, we hope that there will be a podcast, as usual, of this event that you can listen to. There's also a uh, live tweet, uh, a live um, webcast happening of this event as we speak. And, of course, very importantly, for those of you who want to not only get a bargain, uh, but also uh, get a signed copy of the book, and Bruce will be here, and you can get it for £20 instead of £25. So absolutely worth doing after this event here. Now, how much is it? Even cheaper. I think it's 15 <laughs> <laughs> Negotiate. Right, okay. Uh, anyway, it's a good deal. Uh, I've had the pleasure of actually uh, going through one of the proofs and being uh, briefed about it in the past few weeks and find it uh, very rewarding. Um, the evening, let me tell you a little bit about the format before we go into the content. Very uh, familiar to many of you who've been at the LSE. Basically, we're going to have uh, four speakers in sequence and then open up questions for the, uh, to the floor after we've had a bit of a discussion here on the stage. Um, Anne will speak for about 20 minutes or so, really summarizing the big themes of the book. That will be followed by Bruce Katz, who will really set the context of the American uh, situation. And then we have two, as I say, of the protagonists in many ways, uh, Donald from Belfast and Mathieu from Lille, who will talk about the experiences in their cities for about 10 uh, minutes each. And interestingly, we have the, effectively the director of planning and design of Lille, in the case of Mathieu and Donald who's in charge of economic development in Belfast, two cities which really have shown um, that you can turn cities around from very, very difficult circumstances. Now, um, Anne Power, who will um, be speaking in a moment, has really been studying, let's call it difficult cities, the cities that really need to be studied uh, for decades now. She's always, um, in a way, embraced the problems of the city, both as a physical artifact, as a social artifact, and a political artifact. How do all these different aspects come together? But I would say, and many of us in the room know this, uh, recently, 
relatively recently in a long and distinguished career, has become increasingly interested in the effect of the environment. The effect of the environment on cities and cities on the environment and how the social, the environmental, and the economic come together. That is one of the key, and I have to say, new themes that emerge so strongly for this book that, you know, to, to paraphrase in the, what is at the end of this book, it's only by working on all those three things together that you can actually resolve the problems of cities as we go forward. And, uh, and I stress that I see a number of people in the room like Herbert Girard there and Christopher Tickell who were pioneers very much on, of these uh, themes of, a while back. And they've been embraced by, uh, embraced by the research over the last 10 years. This is a 10-year project, and we'll speak about that, uh, which has looked at um, seven cities uh, across Europe, which will be described. They're all cities that really ha were having a hard time but had a travel a direction of travel about how to put themselves right and how to, how to fix themselves. And why it's interesting to have Bruce Katz here is to hear how, in a way, the American uh, sort of mirror isn't necessarily a matching mirror, but beginning to sort of catch up in terms of giving importance to cities in terms of their resurgence and returning, in a way, to um, the, the, um, the economy, the, the cyclical economy, which is a beneficial socially and environmentally, as I've said before. So we're going to have a, a series of speakers. We will then um, have a discussion. And when we come to questions from the floor, can I please ask you to wait for a microphone, uh, either upstairs or downstairs. Uh, ideally, stand up if you want to. Uh, tell us who you are. That's very useful. And please don't make a speech. Uh, the LSE has ways of stopping that. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, we'd like to hear a question or a comment is fine, but please don't make a speech. Uh, and then some of those questions will be um, uh, addressed by the panel. We aim to end uh, by 8 o'clock to allow you plenty of time to come and speak to Anne and Bruce and, of course, by the book, as I've said. Um, so let me start by perhaps just introducing the first two speakers very, very briefly, also because they're familiar to you, um, Anne Power is not only a professor of social policy, she runs, as I've said, the housing and communities uh, group uh, at the London School of Economics, has been involved with the Center of Social Exclusion here for a number of years. Um, she's done many, many things apart from being the preeminent expert on uh, housing and the connection between housing and their uh, urban environments in this country and elsewhere, but she's also put her money where her mouth is, so to speak. She's become very involved in the front line with the National Community Resource Center, which she founded now nearly 20 years ago. Uh, together with others here, she um, was a member of Richard Rogers' Urban Task Force, which still, I have to say, I'm very proud of that because I was a member too, still influenced at least the thinking, if not the exact policy, which was happening in terms of central government and uh, has written an extensive number of books and uh, publications. I want to introduce Bruce at the same time, only to have maybe a, more of a seamless uh, discussion. I mean, Bruce and Anne are the two most energetic and passionate people I know. Dinner with them is something else, and that's got nothing to do with the food and the drink. It's just a completely uh, intense experience because they care so much about uh, the plight of cities and the plight of people in cities and what to do about them, not just analyze what is there, how to turn it around. 
And Bruce has been doing this in the States, mainly at the Brookings Institution, a major, very influential think tank in Washington, D.C., where he ran, and was, he was the vice president, and then ran for many, many years. He founded it and ran the Metropolitan Policy Program, highly influential on different national governments. In fact, before that, he was uh, the chief of staff for Henry Cisneros, who was the Secretary of State for Housing and Urban Development. So again, we're talking about individuals here who mirror what is uh, the other two speakers, uh, and in, uh, a connection between research and practice in terms of everyday uh, policy. That's very, very important. And in the last year, actually, Bruce has uh, slightly switched. I think he's been so excited by being um, exposed to academics that he's become one himself, nearly, because he's the inaugural, the one and only uh, centennial scholar at Brookings, uh, looking very much at these issues of urban innovation through a new uh, program funded by the Bass family. And I'm sure some of the work and thinking will come through in that. So uh, you have four, I think, extremely interesting uh, speakers who will set bigger picture in terms of what the issues are in, 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 in the context of resurgent cities, cities that are um, really leading the way in this small and pretty highly populated continent. Uh, let's remind you that the, uh, Europe has over 80% of it is urbanized. Africa, to give you an example, is 37% urbanized. China is only 54% urbanized. Obviously, those figures are going to change. So looking at what Europe does is very important, and I think that's what uh, we will start by speaking about this evening with Anne, and then we will move on to uh, Bruce. So please join me in welcoming the four speakers. Thank you very much. So um, the main theme of Cities for a Small Continent is twofold. First of all, that European cities matter hugely. They're where we've come from. They're where we're going. Um, and that former industrial cities are actually tomorrow's cities, which isn't how most people think about them. But I'm going to try and persuade you that that's how it is. So starting with a question, why industrial cities matter, well, in 1995 and 6, funded by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, I did a study with um, a fellow researcher called The Slow Death of Great Cities. And that was because urban abandonment in America was happening on such a scale and causing such terror over here that when cities like Manchester and Newcastle started to show signs of empty properties emerging in their city streets, in their inner city streets, there was kind of quite serious panic. So that was my first exposure to what happens when cities start losing population in a significant way. So in Newcastle, for example, they were offering two houses for the price of one, and the price of one was £5,000. Um, following that, the whole idea of the compact city emerged, basically that cities can't spread out. In, certainly in England, we just don't have the space. So this idea of building garden cities and, you know, exurbs and all that stuff, in my view, just will not happen. Bits of it will happen, but basically it won't happen. There's just too much fight over it, and it's not nimbyism. It's literally the environment won't take it. And that's why the Urban Task Force was formed, um, which both Ricky and I were on, and Crispin, and probably a few other people who are here. So, so, and that was a big eye-opener to me. I wrote Cities for a Small Country, 
with Richard Rogers as a result of that, which led me to think about cities for a small continent, of course. Um, and then after that, I was actually made a member of the Government Sustainable Development Commission, and for nine years I heard the horrific truth of scientific evidence that we were not going to be able to carry on as we were, but that we couldn't go for sustainable economic growth. That was utterly meaningless if we didn't also take care of social problems, which were mounting very fast in industrial cities, and the environment. And the environment was obviously the big underpinning. If we don't take care of the environment, nothing else will work. So why do cities matter so much in Europe? First of all, we're very crowded continent, and there simply isn't anywhere else to go. Um, in America, people were jumping from Rust Belt cities to kind of Phoenix, Arizona, or Atlanta, Georgia, or where, all sorts of other places. Here, there really wasn't anywhere else to go, so sprawl had to stop. Um, and we did have 2,000 years of a civic tradition that we really wanted to preserve. At the same time, European cities had this really dense network of rail connections, river connections, canal connections. We just weren't city, city, city without any links between many hundreds of miles and many hours of travelling in order to get from one to another. They were almost bumping into each other. At the same time, declining cities drive sprawl. People don't like declining cities. So Newcastle, for example, extended its green belt precisely because Newcastle was declining in order to be able to build outside the city and persuade people that Newcastle was still okay because there were these new houses on the green belt. Well, that obviously wasn't going to work for very long. And at the same time, it was causing huge inequalities between places. And the reason that was getting worse and worse was because industry was going. So jobs were going, population was going, and the more that happened, the more people wanted to get out. So the economic rationale of cities was disappearing with huge social costs and leaving cities with a scale of environmental damage that was quite unthinkable. Um, today in our city roundtable, somebody was talking about the level of pollution in this, I think it was Mathieu in Lille maybe, um, the level of pollution in a huge city site of 58 hectares being so intense that they couldn't actually use this site until a vast investment happened um, to be able to reclaim it. And, and that was Europe-wide. And again, that came up in the um, Urban Task Force. So basically, these are the seven cities. These are just a few snapshots. Unfortunately, I haven't got time to take you through them all of how they were, very early workshop in Sheffield, um, old uh, textile mill in Lille closed down, abandoned steelworks in Bilbao, massive um, imperial arms and manifrance in Saint-Étienne, all closed down. Basically, it's a, it's a story, Fiat in Torino, it's a story of closure, the Titanic dock in Belfast. Um, closure and abandonment. You can see the abandoned properties in Leipzig. Whoops, you're not supposed to be on recovery yet. Um, so as a result of that, a completely different kind of leadership idea emerged that cities had to do something for themselves. They couldn't abandon a population of 500,000 people, for example, or even a million in the case of Torino. Um, you needed new vision, you needed new talent, but at the same time, you were stuck with your old infrastructure. So was it so bad to have these dense railway networks and these canals and these old industrial warehouses and these old terraced houses that were being sold two for one? And actually, suddenly, cities began to realize that all of that stuff 
was worth a lot of money. Um, and so European governments, literally all over Europe, our government, British government, French, Italian, Spanish, German, made a collective but not collective. In other words, they made the decision country by country and under the umbrella of the European Union that they would reinvest in cities. And I think, and there's a whole sort of chapter on this in, in the book, that the European wars had caused so much devastation in Europe and the memory of it was still so vivid that the idea that we could somehow abandon these places that had not only produced the arms for our wars but had actually produced the post-war wealth and consumption booms that we were all enjoying. And so this idea of a social Europe did actually hold, um, and in spite of Britain's island mentality, which we just can't get out of somehow, um, we are also part of Europe. And I think the fact that Thatcher agreed with the French government to build the Channel Tunnel is a bit remarkable, really, when we look at what's going on today. So city governments and national governments and the European Union decided that making a payback for this huge extraction of wealth and resources was really important. At the same time, Europe's environmental links li limits were much clearer than, say, they were in America. Um, we had, on the one hand, this proximity and dense railway networks, accessible suburbs and universal service. These all became assets, but we also had flooding and we had overheating and we had very poorly insulated buildings and we were basically running out of energy. Europe doesn't have a secure energy supply. Meanwhile, the US model of production and consumption and building just doesn't work in Europe. There isn't the space. So we tried a few copycat experiments. Big cars don't work in Europe. So when the oil crash happened in the 1970s, we were the envy of America because suddenly we knew how to produce small cars, whereas the Americans didn't. Our agricultural systems were more sustainable, not very sustainable, but more sustainable than the mega... Um, agricultural production of the United States and superstores are not very popular in Europe, although there was quite a big attempt to make them so. And so we set about restoring our declining cities, and there were a number of things that all these cities did. They did not put their heads together to do it, so it's quite remarkable that such a strong pattern emerged. So they restored their civic infrastructure, and because these cities had been so rich, they actually had majestic um, civic town halls, they had uh, cultural institutions, they had orchestras, they had universities, the lot really. They had to restore their neighbourhoods because if they didn't restore their neighbourhoods, the typical Newcastle two-for-one problem, then they wouldn't attract the new workers and the new investors that they needed. Um, their universities carried on doing their research and development in spite of losing what had previously been their rationale and nobody quite realised how far the universities, they were technical universities on the whole, um, were pushing frontiers on green innovation, for example, or on advanced materials or advanced manufacturing. And the result of all that investment meant that jobs recovered, a new economy was created, and the reinvestment actually worked. There was a strong equalizing idea which actually didn't equalize poor neighborhoods with better-off neighborhoods. There was a serious skills mismatch which attempts at creating... Um, job programs and job match um, initiatives made some dent on, but it was never enough. So, so the problems remained, but the direction was positive. Populations recovered, jobs recovered, and the cities did start to look really, really different. Now, obviously, I've chosen some pretty sort of spectacular photographs, but 
This is the old Imperial Arms Factory, and this is the old Fiat Factory. Just to give you, this is the uh, second oldest university in Germany, Leipzig. That is the old Titanic dock where they've obviously produced this massively impressive new building. But if you look very, very closely in the left-hand corner, you can actually see the old Harland and Wolf um, Custom House as well. So, so, so they were literally using what was there in order to produce something new. And then what happens? Then comes the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis, the banking crisis. And it really looks as though these cities are going to be sunk. Job losses hit youth particularly, so Torino's youth unemployment went up to 25%. That was pretty much matched in all the cities. Um, Funds for reinvestment were frozen, and in some cases recovery projects were actually stopped dead in their track. The credit crunch made it hard to borrow, so the enterprises that were growing couldn't actually expand in the way they wanted to. And in addition, because the cities had reinvested so heavily, there was this steep overhanging debt. And so that looked as though cities were really stuck, uh, these industrial cities. On the other hand, the reinvestment of the 2000s stood the cities in good stead. And meanwhile, small and medium enterprises that were very often the offshoots or the supply chains for the big industries that had gone had carried on and had actually proved to be much more resilient and much more adaptable than the big industries which simply hadn't been able to cope. And so a very, very huge number of SMEs in Sheffield, it was 12,000, in Saint-Étienne, it was about 17,000, I think. City governments were saying, oh, no, such a nightmare. You can't manage them, you can't help them. They won't change, they won't take on staff, they won't grow, they're just messy. They're not what cities had thought of as being what they really wanted. Suddenly, that whole sector became the way forward. So... In Sheffield, I think it's 87% of all private sector jobs are in small and medium enterprises. It is huge. It's, without anybody realising, a massive sector. And the most interesting thing is that the traditional technical skills of the old industries got transferred into these either surviving enterprises or new enterprises to do new things. And green initiatives began to flourish, given that the resource constraints of the cities were so huge. So, for example, anything that looked like green space suddenly became hugely valuable and had to be protected. So Sheffield had a community forest in Leipzig where the whole allotment movement in Germany was founded, suddenly started to really promote growing things on the derelict spaces in the city. In Lille, um, a new urban village was built right next to Jura Lille. You couldn't find anything more, more contradictory in a way. You've got these massive um, buildings like on the, on the cover of the book. And then next to it, you've got this um, quite, um, quite petite and quite impressive um, new development of social and market housing, a lot of it to very, very high or passive house standards. And there was something else that was going on. New movements were emerging from America, <clears throat> like the Maker Movement and the Fab Labs, which came out of MIT. And basically, they were about mainly men, mainly youngish, but in-work men, like fiddling around with stuff. They like making things. It's sort of the shed kind of idea, except that not just a simple shed in your back garden, but actually a place set up with machinery where you could be really clever and do, for example, 3D printing. You used your computer and you 
designed whatever it was you were trying to design, a new helicopter blade, for example, and your 3D printing machine would actually do it for you. Well, it seems a bit fantastical, but that movement caught on in Europe like absolute wildfire. So basically, European cities have got these um, fab labs. We tumbled across one in Bilbao. We tumbled across another one in Torino. The British government has just funded Sheffield to actually have its very own um, fab lab in a derelict store in the middle of um, Sheffield. And the energy saving of materials and of energy in use that has gone into that movement is absolutely huge. So basically cities are creating all sorts of experiments (coughs) which... um, build on this. I'll just give a couple of examples. For example, in Torino there's a company, a design company called Pininfarina that designed electric car share for the city of Paris. And so Paris now doesn't just have Velib, it has Autolib. It has electric car share covering the city, 10,000 cars designed in Torino. One of the big barriers to electric cars taking off so that we become more environmentally sustainable is the use of batteries and the way batteries are designed. Well, Sheffield has recently designed a battery that's a third of the cost, a third of the weight, uh, no, a third faster in terms of recharging and will go a third further. So it's a win on every front. These cities have actually become a kind of beacon, really, of what can be done with the old technical skills, the old reused infrastructure, and this kind of new momentum behind austerity, climate change, environmental threats, and making something out of what seemed to be nothing. These cities seem to be nothing, nowhere. And then they've actually reworked what they had and turned it into something. There is a huge ongoing challenge of integration I don't have a glass. I hope people won't mind me drinking out of the bottle. (laughs) Minority populations were imported into all these cities because as the industries struggled to survive, so they looked for the workers that would be willing to work night shifts, for example, that would keep the factories going. And by keeping the factories going, those industries would survive more successfully. So, for example, all the textile towns of Lancashire have got very large Asian populations that were brought in to keep the textile industries going at a point where textiles were declining and those populations became stranded when textiles went. And that's why, basically, we had the riots in the northern Lancashire towns in the 2000s. It was a stranded population with a very resentful white population also left behind. Uh, And that's a challenge in all the cities. In Torino, it's a particularly harsh challenge because of the mass floods of migrants coming across the Mediterranean and then filtering their way up to the city of Torino. But it's a problem everywhere. Another of the problems is that these cities generally have a big low-wage economy. So there's this very high-skill, high-tech, green innovation exciting university research, incubators, all of that going on. But that is supported by a lot of low-level, small and medium enterprises that provide all the services that back up those high-tech industries. And therefore, when you see, for example, progress in the economy of 
ex-industrial cities, you'll always see that they have low productivity. Basically, that means that jobs are a priority, that a lot of the jobs are the backup services, a lot of the jobs are the kind of jobs that will um, pull up the low-skilled population that's been left behind. And I think we need a much more careful study of how we measure productivity and what the kind of meaning of gross value added is in a city where you're struggling to keep the population afloat. Um, so there's still poor places. There are still social threats. But social is very high on the European agenda, and it does constantly attract investment, even today. And today, in this country, where obviously welfare reform is raising massive questions, one of the interesting big investments that's going on, for example, in Sheffield, is around skills development and helping people into work who otherwise wouldn't be. So finally, I just want to say that the climate change issue has for a long time dominated European urban thinking because we had to think about it because we were short of environment. Our environments in these industrial cities were very, very seriously damaged. Um, but obviously, over the whole build-up to the Paris Climate Change Conference, it became a much, much bigger deal. So while inequality and poverty and social problems have continued, so the threat of climate change has become even more serious. And I suppose one of the interesting outcomes is that these recovering ex-industrial cities have had to reuse everything they've got. They've had to recycle their buildings. They've had to recycle their water systems, their soil, um, their university skills. And so the idea of a circular economy became part of what these cities are. So you don't take out more than you can put back. And you don't make waste more than you can compensate for. And you reuse absolutely everything. And then when you're stuck, you reinvent. You find new ways of doing old things. And so I've called that in the book the re-economy, R-E economy. And if all of you do a quick little test on yourselves, you'll be able to think of about 25 words that begin with re um, in our language. And they relate exactly to what these kind of cities do. So renewable energy, regrowth, <coughs> reuse, recycling, and so on. I did want to have a table in the book that just set out all the re's, but I decided that was a bit silly, so I didn't. So on the other hand, it does mean that old skills that have always been good at getting by in these cities, these cities have always been poor. They were rich and poor. Their industries were rich, but the mass of people weren't rich. And, and so they've got a very big problem-solving capacity that is really being put to use today. And I just thought I'd show you, as a cheerful uh, last slide, given how serious climate change is, just a few pictures of what's going on in the city. So this is the Pininfarina um, Autolib in Paris being recharged, as you can see. So that's Paris, not Torino, by the way. On the other hand, it is Torino that invented it. Um, Saint-Étienne is considered one of France's ugliest and least recovering cities. And among our cities, it was the last city to recover population. It only started to recover population in 2014. Two years ago, we were so happy. Um, but it's on the edge of a big national park, which nobody knows about and which is really beautiful. Um, Belfast is going very big on renewable energy, partly because it's got no indigenous energy source other than renewable energy, and it is extremely windy, and it has huge tides, 
Um, <coughs> and that's a tidal sea turbine. Uh, Leipzig is very into green, as you can see. That's Lille's uh, Bois Habité, the uh, environmental um, urban village. This is Bilbao's environmental park. So Bilbao is really a city that has all these um, engineering and applied skills writ large. And it's sort of in the edge of the Pyrenees and has managed to create a really big concentration of um, new green enterprises. Sheffield, which has got seven hills, so it's like Rome. Most people don't think it's very like Rome. Um, <laughs> and one third of the city of Sheffield is the Peak District National Park. They were very, very excited when the Tour de France started off in Yorkshire and rode through Sheffield. So Sheffield now has a huge outdoor pursuits economic cluster uh, with 200 new enterprises all doing outdoor pursuits, and that's the Tour de France going through Sheffield. So these cities were born as problem solvers. Energy reduction is absolutely crucial to all of us, but these were very, very energy-intensive cities. Everything that industry did was heavy metal bashing, heavy temperatures, and heavy energy use. And the new economy that they now promise will actually make cities better. We have no choice but to live within our tight limits. And so I think these cities do show the way. And just in case you're not convinced, these are the socio-economic trends across the world since 1950. If you just look at the sweep up of everything, whether it's water use, whether it's urban population, whether it's uh, foreign direct investment, <coughs> whether it's telecommunications, transfer, whatever you think of. And then if you look at what's happening to the Earth systems as a match for that, then you will be truly horrified. Carbon dioxide, uh, I can't see very well from here, stratospheric ozone, um, shrimp aquaculture, <laughs> etc. So if we don't take this graph seriously, then we're completely stuck. If we don't take it seriously, we're stupid. And what's interesting is that these cities, by force of circumstance, have done exactly that. They've taken it very seriously and gone down the road of recycling. I think that's really good. Thank you, everybody. Um, well, it's an absolute pleasure to follow Anne. And I just wanted to uh, thank her and thank uh, Ricky for my continuing education at the London School of Economics. Um, this has been a great uh, U.S.-European project. And um, what I will do is try to summarize uh, what, I've, what I think are the lessons from America um, in 10 minutes or less. And, and so I think three lessons. First, uh, because I come from a land without a national government today, uh, and is conducting its presidential campaign as a reality TV show. Um, first lesson is big market and demographic forces are revaluing cities and cityness. Uh, Ricky will remember cityness from Saskia Sassen. Proximity, density, vibrancy, diversity. Uh, second, there is an urban regeneration underway. Uh, in the book, we talk about Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Cleveland and Detroit. However, it is being led by networks of public, private, and civic institutions and leaders, what I call a new American localism. And finally, uh, we're just at the beginning of the cycle of urban regeneration. And I think what's going to come 
will be a new burst of innovation around private finance instruments, uh, new kinds of public-private institutions. I'll talk just a second about that. First point, there are big forces underway. This is not just particularly in the United States about government policy. Uh, Demographic transformation, change in demographic preferences. What we're seeing are segments of the U.S. population, talk a lot about the millennials, but there are other segments, empty nesters for sure, that are beginning to say, we want communities where you can live, work, and play, and where we can basically have different kinds of behavior, where we don't need just to own everything. We can share uh, particular goods. And so um, demographics are driving the regeneration. I think actually we've overemphasized that and underemphasized a major shift in the U.S. and European economy from a closed innovation economy where many of our corporations, our so-called innovative corporations, invented new discoveries for the market uh, in isolation at science research parks, uh, auto-dependent corporate campuses. What you're now seeing is the rise of open networked innovation. And when you rely on networks for innovation, what you want is proximity, what you want is density, what you want are urban innovation districts right up against advanced research institutions, medical campuses, and so forth. We're also moving from a siloed economy to essentially a convergence economy, the interplay of software and hardware, manufacturing and services, the Internet of Things. And when you move to that kind of economy, uh, as one of uh, the Brookings trustees, Antoine von Achmel, just said in a new book, The Smartest Places on Earth, you go from from a place where you had the era of cheap, offshoring, outsourcing, to the era of smart. All that basically uh, benefits cities and cityness. And the last piece is obviously uh, climate change, the imperative uh, that cities, which in in theory should help us grow while reducing carbon emissions, if we're smart about physical development patterns, if we're smart about technological innovation. So we are seeing a regeneration happen in the United States not in all of our city space, but particularly in the downtowns and the midtowns of our cities. Because these are the places, our central business districts, basically all developed along waterfronts, riverfronts, and these midtown areas where the United States basically located our major research institutions and medical campuses, this is where we're seeing the regeneration. And it's the mashup economy. It's the universities, entrepreneurs, startups, scale-ups, mature companies, all in relatively small geographies, uh, seamlessly sharing ideas, seamlessly discovering uh, new products and processes for the market. Again, this is being supported by the national government, but it's essentially being led by networks. Uh, Cities are not governments. National governments are governments. States in the United States or provinces in other parts of the world are governments, right? Cities are networks. Cities are places where public, private, and civic institutions across multiple domains come together, work together, collaborate to compete. And so what you're seeing are sort of bottom-up solutions 
the skilling of workers, the education of children, the mitigation of climate change, the financing of infrastructure, the development of affordable housing, the creation of quality places, that's what's happening in cities. Sometimes with national support, oftentimes without. So the lessons of this regeneration, there's no government program that was called the City Recovery Project. If there had been, it would have failed. Let's just be clear about that. What there are are networks of institutions and leaders coming together to basically leverage their distinctive assets, their competitive advantages. They're doing it in holistic and multidisciplinary ways. Government, at the national level, tends to be very siloed, very stovepipe, very compartmentalized, very fragmented. When you come to the ground, it's much easier to think about solving problems in integrated and holistic ways. This is a 21st century kind of problem solving. And finally, capital is being deployed from multiple sources. Particularly in the United States, we're unlocking local capital and we're accessing institutional investment around regeneration, around this new manufacturing, around these new technological innovations, and so forth. Last piece. This is the beginning of a cycle. I think what we're beginning to see in the United States and in Europe, and frankly, in many respects, more out of Europe, because your public sector is stronger in many parts of the continent, not necessarily the UK, though devolution is beginning to change that, but particularly in Germany and some of the northern countries. What we're seeing are new financial instruments, right? Think social impact bonds. Think green bonds. We're seeing new financial mechanisms the unlocking or the valuing of public assets, particularly land, for large-scale regeneration, energy transition, infrastructure finance. A lot of what happened in Bilbao was essentially the national government, the state, the province, the county, the city, pooling their land around large-scale regeneration. And finally, new kinds of institutions, publicly owned private corporations like Hoffman City, or city and harbor in Copenhagen, or even city, uh, cities coming together in Sweden, in Communivest, to basically unlock value um, and, and generate large-scale capital for doing the right thing. So I think this book is very, very important, not because it retrospectively sort of, sort of captures and codifies the regeneration of our older industrial cities, but because it basically says there are trends and dynamics and new ways of doing business in the world, particularly in these mature economies, uh, that can deliver more productive and more prosperous cities for sure, but also more sustainable, inclusive places. Uh, it's a privilege to be part of this, and I look forward to the other panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce, and thank you, Anne. Can, can I just ask you both a couple of questions before turning to Donald? I mean, one of the critical points you've just made, Bruce, is um, in a way the American city and the resurgence, slow as it is, uh, tends to be more bottom-up in terms of what you're observing with hardly any government. Sorry about the echo here. Uh, with hardly any sort of government support, and nearly all the examples you talk about in the book have pretty serious levels of city support where the money was available or where the political will was found, uh, certainly national, but also supranational in the case of Europe. 
Can you both talk just a little bit about these two areas? But you need the microphone, Anne. Can we go to you first? And how important that is? Because I know you're, you don't see mayors as being the solution to everything, but strong city government provides leadership. How, how do I we only don't it? see mayors as the solution to everything, because lots Bring of Bring the microphone oh, closer. Just, Bruce, can you put yeah. 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 Okay. Because lots of them in America get locked up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it would be better not Become to commit presence. ourselves entirely. <laughs> Let's take it out, sir. Government is huge in Europe. There's no question. We once did a calculation in one of our city reformers meeting about um, philanthropic investment in neighborhood recovery in Philadelphia. And we did a quick, it was very quick, it was in the meeting, comparison with city investment coupled with European investment in Sheffield. There was absolutely no comparison. And I'm afraid, I don't know if Bruce thinks this is really bad, it shows on the ground I mean, there are poor neighbourhoods in Sheffield. There are poor people in Sheffield. There are areas that cry out for reinvestment. They don't look even remotely like American poor neighbourhoods. Explain what you actually mean by that. Well, the racial segregation, the schooling, Mm -hmm. um, the health service, uh, the the jobs, the efforts at reskilling, the efforts at reintroducing... Uh, the level of incarceration, uh, the level of crime, the level of violence. I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, really bad. No, but Bruce, but on that th- note. they really are in a different place, and I think city government has a lot to do with it. But I think we have the kind of city governments we have, partly because of our industrial history. We were there first, and we just had to. Um, but also because of two world wars, and we got completely smashed. We smashed ourselves. And we realized that that left us in a huge mess. And let's not forget that it was the Americans who came in with the Marshall Plan and actually helped Europe get back on its feet. And backed by America, a lot of that money went into city reinvestment. So it's not as though the Americans don't agree with it. It's just they don't seem to so, be quite so good at doing it. And I, you know, um, <laughs> this is what I love about coming uh, and being on a panel with Anne. So the, 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 the national government in the United States is essentially a health care company with an army. Yeah. That's basically what we have. Um, and that's before this aging tsunami really takes hold. Now, the good part about that for cities is our national government invests an enormous amount in research and development, in basic science, either through our National Institute of Health or through the Defense Department. A lot of that money does flow into advanced research institutions, which disproportionately are located in the cores of cities. And so what has happened in the United States? But this is a silent urban policy. It's not intentional. It's not purposeful. Uh, If it was, they probably would have stopped it. Um, Is these large forces I'm talking about, demographic transformation, economic restructuring, are revaluing, are are leveraging these large national investments in R&D. And so that's essentially the hidden part of the urban recovery in the United States and, frankly, charitable deductions, so that we have large philanthropies in the United States that basically are able to channel funds 
into regeneration, into placemaking, into our universities, uh, into our startups and scale-ups. So there's part of the national government which is aiding this, but as Anne is absolutely correct, um, there's whole other bits of domestic policy which are basically owned either de facto or de jure by cities and metropolitan areas, and they don't necessarily have the fiscal wherewithal to, to deal with some of the big I, neighborhood regeneration schedules. Before we turn to the yep. two cities, let's just take one other point which came out from your conversation to maybe frame the, the discussion also is the key link between um, effectively the density, you've both used this word a lot, right, and productivity effectively. Yep. I mean, it's very interesting. You were talking about cities effectively are networks. Yes. But networks depend on things being connected, people, <clears throat> places, and, and all that. Of course, the American city is more sparse mm-hmm. and more maybe difficult to connect in certain ways. Is this something that in the seven cities and that you've been looking at is density, proximity, let's call it, of people? You use the word infrastructure. You just pass by it very quickly, and I know you're going to talk about this in, in a moment. Well, how important is that as part of the, the platform which you can uh, you know, stitch together cities again, both socially and physically, and then Bruce? I mean, there are two sides to that. So the one side of it is that ex-industrial cities in Europe were incredibly dense in their growth era. But then, because of the wealth they created, they were able to disperse. So they were able to build housing beyond the city boundary. Cars were coming in. The idea that we could build urban motorways copying America kind of caught on. It's very interesting that Glasgow has only just but finished what its about, urban motorway. What about now? What's the well, positive so, well, side? So the, so the interesting thing was that because of the dispersal and because of the then bumping into the next city, European cities very quickly realised they just couldn't carry on like that. And so in the recovery period, it was reusing old buildings, which gave them capacity to inject new people and new enterprises and led to the recovery. So so I I think it's worked two ways. It worked badly in the really big, wealthy growth period, but then that gave space for recovery, which was easy to reclaim because we kept in place our public transport infrastructure, because we kept in place our school systems and our health services. Do do you know about public transport? I've heard about it. (laughs) Um, uh, But in the U.S., it's increasingly locally financed because we have a national government that's missing But on this issue of density. So here's what matters, I think, to the innovative economy. America is a very, very large place. Our metros have sprawled out, decentralized, very dispersed populations. What matters to the innovative economy is one square mile, Right. A place like the Oakland neighborhood in Pittsburgh, where you have Carnegie Mellon, the University of Pittsburgh, uh, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, or University City in Philadelphia, where you have the University of Pennsylvania and Drexel right up against 30th Street Station with various hospitals. Those are the brain hubs of America's metropolitan areas. And what has happened as we've moved from a closed innovation economy to an open innovation economy, where there's a convergence across clusters and disciplines and experts, these very small bits have been completely revalued by people, by, by companies, and by investors. And so we probably in the United States will continue to have sprawling metropolitan areas, but we'll have very dense, very robust, vital, vibrant, authentic innovation hubs. And so America is always like, you know, both and. Um, and uh, but 
we are going to be a crazy innovative place because so many of our universities and the entrepreneurs and corporations that revolve and congregate around them are highly um, co uh, concentrated. Well, now here, Donald, you're going to show us some slides of uh, the case of oh, Belfast. Sure. Interesting uh, that a, a lot of the um, foreign investment that has come into Belfast is also from the United States. Um, so it's a case which, where resurgence has come not just from local investment, but also a lot of international investment. So Donald, who, as you know, is Director of Development in the city of Belfast, um, give us a sense of what's been happening there. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Ricky. Good evening, everyone. Um, yes, when we were doing our roundtable discussion this afternoon, um, Alex Jones from Centre for Cities was talking about the importance of history and the impact that history has on various cities, and, and Belfast definitely has a history, um, and that history continues to impact and affect the development of the, of the city to date and going forward, and maybe touching that. And because of the, the pasts within Belfast, we um, constantly tend to do perception surveys um, across the world to check and see what do people actually think about whenever they, they think of Belfast. Um, and it has always been, the perception has been kind of based on two T's, um, the Titanic um, and the Troubles. And as I said earlier on, interestingly, we had a, a Japanese delegation in a couple of weeks ago uh, and I asked them what their perception was of Belfast and, and again they went through uh, the Troubles and then nothing and I said well what about the Titanic and they said well interestingly a lot of people in Japan think the Titanic was actually built in Southampton because that's where its maiden voyage went from um, so we said you haven't even got the benefit in Belfast of having something good that happened initially. In, in terms of what we're trying to do within the city uh, is very much um, to, to, to break that myth in, in terms of the, the two T's, in terms of the perception, and it's actually to promote the economic reality that is Belfast at the moment, and it's around three T's. It's about the talent that we have in Belfast. Um, it's about the technology that we have as well in terms of the investment, and Bruce had made the point in terms of massive investment going into research and development, and I'll, I'll touch on that slightly because that's what's happening in Belfast at the moment. And also tax, tax is, a, is a big um, incentive for Belfast. Maybe you don't realise yet, but corporation tax will be reduced to 12.5% in Belfast from the 1st of April 2018. So it puts us on a par um, with the tax regime in the Republic of Ireland and will help to create and develop more um, foreign direct investment. Just in, in terms of uh, the game changer for, for Belfast, I mean, we've been working with Anne and her team um, back some 16 years ago. It was three chief executives ago that Anne first engaged with Belfast. But the game changer for Belfast has very much been in 2015 when we had what was called local government reform. Um, and that's when 26 local authorities became 11. Um, and Belfast is the largest local authority um, and is the capital of the, of the region, capital city of Northern Ireland and capital of the region. Um, and and the, the vision for local government reform, which has set the context for Belfast going forward, that the mission and the vision was very much about creating a strong, local, dynamic government and creating communities that are safe, prosperous, vibrant and sustainable. And critically, and this is part of what we will cover as part of the presentation, is having communities at the core of their future development and strategy. And that's very much um, to the fore within, within Belfast. Just very quickly in terms of profile of, of Belfast. Belfast, as a result of local government reform, now has a population just under 350,000. Um, we have two universities, um, two very high-class universities. Queen's University um, is part of the Russell Group, which in American terms would be part of the Ivy League. Um, Ulster University is just currently in the process of a £250 million pound 
um, development within the north side of the city, which within two years will bring 15,000 students and staff into the city from 10 miles out. So, again, points that were made about uh, economic recovery is about, is about developing and investing in the core of the, of the city. Um, we also have the largest further education college in Northern Ireland. So combined within the core one mile, square mile of the city, we will have somewhere in the order of 77,000 full and part-time students. Um, and they have been the pipeline in terms of actually uh, providing the, the skills and the talent into the investments that have been coming in in terms of foreign direct investment that Ricky referred to earlier. And over the last four-year period, we have had £1 billion of inward investment has come into Belfast. 40% of that comes from the U.S., um, so critical in terms of, of, of our ongoing development. And also you'll see um, the Tour de France was in, in, in uh, Sheffield. We didn't have the Tour de France. We had the Giro d'Italia. Um, you can see over, over on the far side, just slightly less uh, important. But critical thing for, for Belfast in terms of city development um, is about normalisation and showing the outside world that Belfast is a prosperous um, city and it is a, is a safe city uh, and we take pride in, in our um, management of international events because it's important for us to use that as a platform and a profile to show where Belfast is in the modern age um, and not only have we had the Giro d'Italia, we've had tall ships, we've had MTV awards, we've had the World Police and Fire Games and we had the BBC Sports Personality of the Year awards uh, last December. We have the Women's Rugby World Cup um, next August uh, and we're pitching along with Dublin for hosting the 2023 uh, Rugby World Cup. So again, very outward looking and very positive and very confident. The other side of the city profile, not to, to delay too much on it, is we still are a city um, that has problems. Economic inactivity sits at 31%. We have 25% youth unemployment still. We have 37% long-term employment. And with 19% of the adult population have no qualifications whatsoever. So that there is a big disparity between uh, those that have and those that have not. And we as a city council have to take direct responsibility in terms of engaging and supporting people um, in the hard-to-reach community in order to, to bring them back into um, the economic cycle and bring them back into the social cycle. And this just quickly gives you an overview in terms of, of um, housing. Anne has spoken before in terms of the level of integration. This kind of shows you the lack of integration and social, social housing in Belfast. Um, we still have communities that are not fully integrated. We have schools that are not fully integrated. So there's still a considerable amount of work to do in terms of trying to integrate and engage the community collectively. Um, but it's something we're working very hard on at the moment. And just to give you an example of some of the things that we're doing, Ricky had asked me to, to show some examples of, of real uh, pieces of work that are ongoing in Belfast at the moment. This is the Girdwood Community Hub. Um, it was an £11 million investment um, supported by City Council and a number of key stakeholders around the city, but also equally, equally with uh, European regional development funds. Um, so a lot of the development in Belfast has been backed up by peace funds and European regional funds. On the left, what you see is an old um, army base. So back during the Troubles, this was an army base in North Belfast. Um, it's in what's called an interface area between the two communities. Um, and during the Troubles, there were quite a number of people who would have lost their lives in this area. And what we have on the, on the bottom right-hand side is now an £11 million community hub um, that is used to actually try and engender community engagements. Um, it consists of um, workspace, of um, office space, of leisure facilities uh, and halls, and it's very much designed to try and make um, um, the facility something that the community would actually work and engage with. 
Also, weekly in, in terms of investment, and again, considerable investment in Belfast, the Belfast Waterfront Hall uh, was built back in 1998. We've just recently finished a £30 million expansion um, to make it into a visitor and convention bureau, um, and we have um, designs to uh, attract large business conventions, business tourism into the city, because um, again, as part of our key target is about integrated economic strategy, is about developing our tourism strategy, um, and it's about doubling the level of tourists and tourist spend into Belfast by, t- by 2020. As part of the statutory requirement in terms of actually developing um, the city, we have a responsibility to develop a, a community plan. Um, and what we did as part of that community plan engagement, which is referred to as the Belfast Agenda, is we went out and spoke um, to a wide number of residents. Uh, we had a lot of workshops. We spoke to stakeholders, consultants and key partners and asked them what they would like to see as outcomes for the city uh, in 2030. So this is a 15-year long-term plan. As you can see, uh, a lot of varied views in terms of what people want to see. So it is about economic development. It is about communities that live together. It's about Belfast people being able to fulfil their potential um, and also um, being a vibrant, connected and attractive city. And again, as Bruce had, had referred to, the, the kind of mission for the Belfast agenda is a city that will uh, be, be, be interesting for someone to come and live, to work, to invest, to study uh, and to visit um, And what we've done with the Belfast Agenda is we have developed four key priorities around business and the economy, about living within Belfast, learning and working in Belfast, and also city development. And these are not single, isolated silos. I mean, what we do in terms of economic development will have an impact on employability and skills. It will have an impact on on community cohesion, and it will make Belfast a more attractive place for people to come to visit to study. So again... Uh, key areas in terms of development going forward and very much about outcome-based. We will have targets set in terms of outcome-based accountability in terms of how we actually move the city forward. And again, picking up on Bruce's point in terms of of, of the city, uh, a lot of this has been built around our city centre regeneration and investment strategy, which we launched last September. And we've set aside um, an £18.7 million development fund where we as a city council will co-invest um, on a commercial basis with partners in order to make sure that we try and get the right type of development happening within the city. And as you can see in terms of the key priorities, for us, this is very much about increasing the population, employment population within the city, increasing residential population. It's about um, enhancing the retail offer, developing the tourism offer, but also importantly, making Belfast a learning and an innovative centre. And again, as Bruce has said, there's a lot of development work going on in terms of developing incubators and accelerators um, to try and get smart people collectively to work together in the city and to bring more vibrancy. And also to make Belfast a green, walkable um, and cyclable centre. Uh, we've developed our own Belfast Bike Share Scheme, which is operating very, very successfully. And also, very importantly, because of our, of our past, uh, as part of this, uh, the, the regeneration and investment strategy, is making sure that Belfast is a connected city, to making sure that communities can move within the city, and also a shared space. And that's critically important um, for us because of our past, is that Belfast and the Belfast City Centre is seen as a shared space by all. Just very quickly, just to touch on some of the, of the developments, top left-hand side is on the north side of the, of the city. Um, it's the development of um, a cultural hub, um, and we're in discussions at the moment, hopefully to attract uh, a relocation of the BBC into this side of the city, which is just right close to where Ulster University's £250 million investment has taken place. 
Our central library is there as well, which has gone under development, and we're also hoping to develop a cultural creative hub where we will have more accelerators and innovators. So it's putting all the right ingredients and tools together in order to develop a vibrant part of, of the city. On the top right-hand side is, is the Linen Quarter, which is the central business district, and it's about trying to, to develop more grade A office space, which again is required from the types of businesses, financial services, financial technology, cybersecurity, creative industries who are interested in moving into the city because that's where the population and the smart people live. On the bottom right-hand corner, you can't do city development without looking at transport uh, and transport hubs, and this is about trying to actually ensure that as we have managed and developed growth within the city, that we have a transport hub that can actually accommodate the people moving in and out of the city. At the moment, 58% of the people who work in Belfast City don't actually live within the city council boundaries. They travel in, so transport is critically important. And on the bottom left-hand side, can't be uh, all work and no play. It's the retail sector within Belfast. And again, what we're trying to do is to have that balanced investment going across a number of different areas. And last but not least, um, some of the discussion that we had this morning in terms of um, people will be aware of city deals that have been um, achieved by the likes of Manchester and Glasgow, I think Edinburgh and, and Cardiff also. Um, Belfast doesn't have a city deal at the moment, but we certainly have an aspiration and a strong appetite in order to get a city deal because we believe um, that at a city council level we have a much better understanding and knowledge of the issues that impact a lot of the communities around the city and therefore we feel we're better placed to actually uh, develop strategies and more importantly action plans in order to, to address some of those problems and to make sure that we have a balanced and inclusive growth um, going forward. Thank you very much. Now we, uh, Matthew will um, speak uh, about projects and initiatives in and it's better if you stay here because otherwise people can't see. <coughs> well thank you very much. Uh, I'll, um, well first I'd like to thank Anne for uh, help bringing us in, in the city of Leland to this 10-year project. I've been participating in the, in the network for the last uh, six or seven years already. And it's been really helpful for, for me as a professional urban designer and planner to, uh, to put a, a handle on the strategies that we're developing in, in terms of recovery and growth of our cities. So in, historically, I mean... Uh, Lille had been really devastated by the crash of the textile and the steel industry uh, after in the 1960s and all through the 1980s. The population of the city dropped by more than 30 percent between uh, what it was at the beginning of the 20th century and what it was at the, in the 1990s. So there was a huge crash. The whole city center, which today were a lot of uh, high-end high fashionable boutiques uh, have bid very highly to get the, the perfect spot in the city center. This was a ghost town in the early 1980s. The buildings were abandoned. It was, there were no, no, no more glass, no more window panes in the window frames. It was, it was really abandoned. And that was the old Flemish town, which was uh, basically in ruins. So there were, I think what the, the work that uh, Anne has done has helped me to understand the different phases of, uh, of recovery that we've been through in Lille, which was first, well, the first step was investment in infrastructure. So that was very strong through the 1980s with the decision to, uh, uh, to carry through the Channel Tunnel and to connect the center of Lille to the high-speed rail network. So that was really a, a key issue. That was a big fight from the, uh, held by the, driven by the mayor at the time, 
who was also prime minister and who had to fight uh, really a tooth and nail to, with the railway authority to bring this new high-speed rail station into the city center because the, high, the, the railway authority wanted to build it a few, more like a, a sh, uh, kind of like an airport, but a bit closer to the city center, but still 10 kilometers away from the city center. And he really had to fight to get this, and I think that was crucial as the first step of transformation of Lille. The second step was the development of new job sectors. So we, throughout the 1990s and the early 2000s, we went through these ideas of developing the technology clusters, so in information technology and then in, in health sciences, And, and that was also a major step in uh, transforming the workforce and providing, really, really creating almost from out of nowhere, uh, new job sectors uh, for, for the city. Um, but by the end of the 1990s and the turn of the millennium, these, these strategies were, were interesting. They were helpful, but they weren't enough because as a post-industrial city, Lille still has um, some very low-income neighborhoods where... Uh, people for, who come from the working class, who had been working in the factories or whose parents had been working in the factories were still living there. Some of them were trapped because they, were, they, owned, ho uh, they owned houses. They were homeowners, but of houses that, have, that had near zero market value. So if they left, they didn't get anything out of it, and they just lost a home, and they were, and, and they were still in the city. So we had a strong incentive as and the politicians had a strong incentive to think about what these policies did to include this working class and make it uh, understand that they 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 belong to the city fabric as much as the new higher skilled workers who came in 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 the recent years and i think that was really the key in the early 2000s to really develop Uh, strongly integrated and inclusive policies in terms of development. So every time we think about an idea in terms of economic development, we have to think about how we can frame it and organize it so it has a positive impact on the environment and on social inclusion. So just giving maybe a, a couple of examples for that. Uh, the first one that was key also for the image of the city was Uh, the, cultural, uh, the cultural policies. So after losing the bid for the Olympics, Lille uh, gathered again and became European uh, cultural capital, which is recognized, at least in France, as a huge success. And not because, not because it, uh, we were able to welcome or to, and to host world-class cultural exhibitions, but because a very, we, we were able to get a very large fraction of the population, including the working class, to participate and to get involved in the cultural activities, uh, either through schools. I think that's something that I was, uh, I came to Lille 10 years ago, and I was surprised every children, every child in every school uh, go, will, every year will go through every single modern or contemporary art exhibit that goes on in the city, whether they come from low-income low neighborhoods or the upscale downtown neighborhoods, they, they all go there, and that's, Uh, another thing that was important also to, to be inclusive was a lot of the cultural centers were actually built by reusing the old industrial uh, buildings. So we had an old beer factory, an old steel mill, and they were converted into cultural centers, which means that people who had been there or who knew, who knew that their parents or grandparents had worked there, they went there to, just to see what the building had become, and then they became active participants in, in these cultural uh, activities. So... The key there, I think the key to the success of the cultural policy was 
how it, it enabled, how it, and it continues to be very inclusive and generate a lot of public participation. Just a second example is um, there was an old cigarette factory just east of Lille, and uh, after many years of discussion, there, we, uh, we managed to negotiate with a local stakeholder, which is the, a big corporation called Decathlon, which produces a lot of sporting goods, and which was historically based in, in northern France. And they were thinking about improving the quality of the, their manufacturing processes, and they decided uh, with the city, so we negotiated with the, with the uh, owners of the, of the cigarette factory to uh, sell it at a reasonable price to this, uh, to this corporation, and it turned it into a bicycle manufacturing plant. So it relocalized some, uh, some of its production to Lille, and as an added benefit, we... Through, still through a bidding process, but they were efficient enough that they won the bid for the public bicycle scheme that is now all around the town, so that people are, you know, you rent a bike somewhere and you, so you had really dividends on all, on, on all fronts. We had reuse of old facilities, uh, which is good in terms of gray energy and not, you know, in, in terms of the, the carbon impact. We had good uh, environmental impacts because people were using more bicycles in the city. We had job creation, and we had some lower-skilled workforce who were involved in and who could participate and had, again, some value given to what they were able to do. So these are just two examples that show how the, 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 the idea and the crucial aspect of integration uh, of, of the different dimensions of the policies have has really been in, important in our recovery, and I think that the the, the dynamics that are uh, on the ongoing dynamics since the the crisis of 2008 has confirmed us into believing that these integrated strategies were probably the best path for recovery for our post-industrial cities. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you you just put in that sentence, um, mayor and prime minister. <laughs> together. Just think of that in our country. Well, we don't, maybe we don't, uh, the, the notion. Uh, just one question for you to uh, think about, and then we can come back to that. You've both painted pretty wonderful pictures of how you've gone from, a, as you described it, a difficult moment in terms of employment, in terms of fragmentation of the economy of society, to a very positive moment. That's why you're an Anne's case study book. What is it that actually made that happen? I mean, in a way, you've told us what's happened. You haven't really explained to us why it's happened. Maybe we can come back to that. But let's use the next uh, 10 minutes or so to get questions from the floor. We might end just after 8. Um, we started a little bit late. So could we go uh, and wait for a microphone? Lady right in the middle. So can you pass the microphone all the way up to in the middle there? Put your hand up so I see you. And then... The next one will be there, and the third one over there. Yeah. So if you tell us who you are, please. Uh, I'm Anne-Sophie Vlain. I work for Crossrail uh, on skills and employment and social sustainability issues. I had a question, actually, uh, for Mathieu um, with regards to the... Obviously, the French government has invested a lot of money, the Urban Renewal Agency, in the past 10 years to uh, renew all those deprived um, neighborhoods, um, which... Are, have been on the spotlight quite recently um, for their lack of integration to the economic development opportunities of the cities in France. What you've mentioned, how successfully you've managed to make sure that those economic development opportunities in the city centre benefited those more deprived um, or lower skilled sort of workers. I think that's 
do you agree that there's still a big challenge there in terms of integrating? And the question is? Do you, wh what's kind of, sorry, <laughs> what's the kind of policy or vision of a city like Lille to kind of make that extra step of integrating those kind of... Right, let's come back to that areas. later. I know the question here, and then pass uh, the microphone. Gentleman over there next. Just, yeah. Okay, uh, Stephen Hill, um, former dropout student from your city's program. <laughs> um, uh, and my question is about what can we learn from the cities that you've been studying and from, from Belfast and, and Lille as well? Um, what lessons can we learn for the trajectory of currently seemingly very successful cities like London and other international cities? And the reason I'm asking that is particularly... Um, the kind of vision that you, you, you paint is of very inclusive cities, um, resurgence of civil society, greater democratic participation. Um, and the thing that you were saying, Bruce, I thought was very striking about the, the, the understanding of cities working as kind of networks and also what I thought you were trying to describe as a kind of a very strong attachment to place, um, a kind of sense of entitlement to belong. Um, and I think one of the things I certainly saw when I was in Cleveland and Philadelphia a couple of years ago was actually that way of um, uh, city authorities, uh, councilmen, and um, civil society working together to try and buttress failing neighborhoods, um, using community land trusts as a way of creating permanently affordable housing, reusing derelict land for employment in urban food growing and so on. Um, and yet here, in this kind of city, the kind of financial orthodoxy and, the, and political orthodoxy, orthodoxy of kind of financialized housing markets is if you can't afford it, you don't belong. Thank you. We'll come back to that. And so uh, Richard McCarthy, um, I suppose, former public official. Um, um, what I'm interested about is how we learn from this and how we look forward and what we take forward. Uh, and uh, quite rightly, Anne has celebrated the investment that has been shared by others as by the public sector and Bruce yourself referenced civic leadership both at the national but very importantly through the devolution story growing it more locally in the city regional level however I wonder if we're not in danger of, of missing what Bruce talked about and the way we think about public policy going forward which is the important about networks so one of the things I reflect on and look at is actually is there not a danger that as we see what's worked and maybe what hasn't worked, that we want to overprescribe? We want to overprescribe not just at the national level but also locally, yeah. uh, both through public leadership and investment but also through um, um, private sector investment as well. Look at the debate that goes on now, which has been, I know, has some coverage in here and has actually been debated nationally, for example, about one small thing, which is about the management of public spaces and our desire to control those. And I wonder if we're now thinking about being too risk-averse. And actually, we're not thinking hard enough about creating the infrastructure and the underpinning moments and buildings and places to let the networks thrive and let the networks decide. Anne, do you want to start on that? Start with that one? Yeah. And, and um, speak close to the microphone, please. No, stay okay. there. I mean, there's a, it's a huge question, Richard. Thank you. Um, I mean, networks are very important in these cities, but so is government. So networks don't appear to be the solution to cities. And 
I'll be very surprised if in cities like Detroit, for example, or Philadelphia, if you look a little bit more closely, you won't find that city government or even Pittsburgh, I mean, I remember reading about the Allegheny Conference and, you know, the city of Pittsburgh played a very big role in that. Um, I'll be very surprised if city government doesn't eventually become more important. Otherwise, I can't see how, for example, public school systems in a city like Detroit or Chicago, frankly, or I don't know enough about Philadelphia schools to know, um, don't, don't have some significant role. So it's not... I don't think it's that networks don't exist here. I just think that they're not as vaunted because we do have other things going on. But if I think of Sheffield, for example... Um, you know, really, really brilliant initiatives like The Rising is one of their new projects. I think it's called The Rise, actually. And it's an apprenticeship scheme for graduates, trying to get graduates into SMEs because SMEs have been very resistant, to not to taking on graduates, but just to taking on a workforce since the recession because it's too risky. And so this project is funded by the City Council, by the Chamber of Commerce, and by the two major universities. And that's what I'd call the kind of thing that Bruce loves. Um, the other thing that Bruce talked about, he's kind of surprised to discover these, what do you call them, publicly owned private companies. Yep. I mean, when I discovered that the entire Berlin social housing stock had been privatized into a company that's 100% owned by Berlin City, I thought, well, I think only in Europe could we kind of see cities in that way and in a way you know our social housing in England being put into Almos that are holy city owned and then transferred into housing associations that then become declared public bodies you know we do that kind of thing all the time it's just that city governments do matter more here and I think it shows in our cities I'm sorry I don't really want to trade networks only for having city governments I just really don't just I mean, to add to the point in terms of net network, networks are um, fundamentally important to Belfast. Belfast is a, is a small city, but what, one of the key things that makes it so um, vibrant is the fact that it is a very, very close network. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, many of you might know about MIPAM, um, which is a large-scale property development exhibition conference in, in Cannes each year. Belfast, for the first time in about five or six years, took a stand at, at MIPAM, um, a city council, put £60,000 onto the table and got approval from, from the council members um, that we could actually go. If that £60,000 could be matched by private sector investment, we ended up tripling the private sector investment and brought 53 stakeholders to, to Cannes. So the, the, a key example in terms of actually going out and promoting the city, but promoting the city on, on a collective basis. What we've also done as a council, I talked about the city centre regeneration and investment strategy. We have co-funded the purchase of buildings in inner city Belfast in order to make sure that we have an influence on what actually happens in, in those spaces. And, and one example was, was a um, particular building that could have gone to student housing. Um, we were more interested in it becoming an innovative hub um, because there's other student housing elsewhere. So it's trying to actually help to plan um, the development of the city. And lastly, um, in terms of the waterfront, the waterfront convention centre now operates as a, as a COCO, so it's a council-owned company where the council is a single stakeholder, but we have outsourced that um, to, to a company to actually run on a commercial basis. So it's, it's, it's different so methodologies. Bruce, if you could tackle that, yep. the second question about place. Yeah, I, I, I think um, 
I just want to make an argument for, for devolution and for networks and what I think is a new circuitry of innovation in the world. I mean, really sort of building from Ricky's urban age, right? I mean, if, if this is a world of cities, the way innovation – no, no, this will be fist. The way innovation happens, right, is one city innovates, new way of solving X problem or new financial instrument done with the private sector or new kind of institution, right – and then other cities begin to mimic, replicate, adapt, tailor to their own circumstance. That's a new circuitry of innovation. The old circuitry of innovation is some think tank somewhere, have I heard of one, um, writes a paper and then goes to a subcommittee or a committee in a legislature and then you wait 10 years for something to happen. I mean, this circuitry of innovation in cities is fast, right? It, 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 it's nimble, it's dynamic, it's entrepreneurial, and it is networked. And I really think that what is happening in the U.K. today is we once had a transit official from New York City come and run your transit agency here, Bob <laughs> Kiley. He called the U.K. North Korea with elections. I mean, um, so we, we need to basically move from a 20th century model of top-down, national government knows all, and knows all through siloed, stovepipe, specialized, compartmentalized bureaucracies – to a 21st century urban age where the national government sets a platform and devolves enormous amount of flexibility down to cities, governments, yes, but also private civic institutions. Batio, do you want to take the first question about infrastructure, integration? Yes, well, I think in, in, in our industrial cities we still have – as I said, we still have a lot of uh, the, the low-skilled workforce is still very important, and especially in some neighborhoods uh, where, I mean, there is some spatial segregation that we still have to work with. So I think the, the main difference is that between what we do today and what we did maybe 20 years ago was that when we, when we set up the technology clusters, for example, in Lille, that was clearly kind of uh, targeted at a uh, high-skilled workforce and people coming straight out of universities or engineering schools. And today we're also working on how to improve um, the, both the skills and the, the groundedness of the service sector or of lower-skilled jobs. So, for example, we've, we're, right now we're very interested in, in looking at the organization of urban logistics um, we're, we think that uh, the efficiency of the city. What does that mean? Uh, so all the the supply chain. So all the. So we we have the in, in Lille we have a, a small inland port that was fairly that was not very active and we're really uh, pushing it to because we think that it can it can add a lot of value into the way that goods are provided into the city center, and they developed a, a multimodal urban distribution center which has no public money involved. They were able, working with uh, the shopkeepers, for example, the shopkeepers in the city center were always, they're always complaining about high rents. They say, you know, we, we, have, uh, we rent all this commercial space and then we have the storage area. And they were able, with a discussion with the port, to organize uh, delocalized storage uh, areas so they can actually have their, the, use the maximum of space in their city, in the central city shops for uh, to market goods, and then the storage is just about one kilometer away. It's very easy to access. You can even kind of buy your stuff in the shop, uh, and then uh, you can go to several stores and then pick it up at the multimodal distribution center if you want to, if you'd rather do that. So we're and and this is a way of 
kind of also bridging the gap uh, between kind of the, the lower skilled workers like the logistics or the all the uh, uh, and 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 bridging that for to provide new jobs that provide added value for kind of higher end jobs. So we have really a, a whole cycle, and we're not targeting only the, the higher skilled jobs. Again, one of, one of the key points of the benefits of proximity and density, which allows that to happen. Now, we haven't actually in the last 20 minutes spoken that much about the environmental issue, but I know that there's a man who's about to ask a question who might somehow over there, and that will be the last question. Here we go. Yeah, thank you, Ricky. My name is Herbert Gerard. I write about uh, cities and their relationship to ecosystems and, and the environment in general, and obviously climate change comes into the picture now. We've heard a lot, very eloquently, uh, a lot about the exciting transformations that have taken place in cities, and particularly in Europe, to a lesser degree in the United States, in urban transformations towards better urban uh, realities than we had uh, as a result of deindustrialization. Could you maybe in the last few minutes give us a picture of what the next 30, 40 years might look like? Do we have to look beyond the edge of the city more than we currently do in terms of climate? I mean, we've had several cities uh, that you know, are close to the sea. I mean, globally, many, many cities are close to the oceans. Sea level rises, climate change, dependence on resources from the rest of the planet, you know, planetary boundaries. How will that inform developments in the next 30 or 40 years? In 30 or 40 seconds. <laughs> well, uh, we're in, Lille isn't close to the sea, so we're not immediately worried by, uh, by this, but we're already thinking about remediation strategies within the city as, for example, typically we, we had several studies on the impact of, uh, of trees uh, in the city center and what their effects is in terms of uh, cooling uh, in the middle of blocks and also in terms of uh, their, their ability to filter some of the small particles. Uh, and so right now we're, we, that has changed our, because our, our tr the tradition in France is to build, uh, you know, alignments of trees. But actually the impact in terms of pollution filtering is not good because when you, when you do an a line of, or a bunch of trees, it blocks the airflow and the airflow goes around it. <laughs> so, so these are ways where we're getting informed. So right now we're, we're planting trees differently in, in order to uh, give some answers to these issues uh, related to the evolution of global warming. Yeah, just very quick. Belfast is is on the sea, um, as you know, in terms of, of launching the Titanic. Um, <laughs> the, the difficult to launch it from inland. Um, but a, a lot of the, the work that's actually happening in, in the harbour now, because it's a, a deep sea port um, where we had um, a lot of shipbuilding skills and um, aerospace skills as well in terms of Bombardier, the largest um, employer in the harbour estate, a lot of that knowledge and expertise has now been transferred into new technology. So, so winds um, and wave technology is being developed in, in the, in the harbour facility. In terms of, of a council, um, we, we have been doing a lot of work now in terms of reclaiming um, landfill sites. Um, so on the North Foreshore, we have a 340-acre site that was a municipal dump um, that is now um, the location for a film studio, um, for a 30-acre eco-park that is being developed at the moment, and also for a mixed-use leisure development park. So, so we're, we're trying to, to use our, our land to be more environmentally friendly as we move right, forward. We have just a few minutes left. A personal story. My mother lives in Brooklyn, New York. The, the morning after Hurricane Sandy, she went into our basement. We had fish in our basement uh, because she lives near the Atlantic Ocean. So what is going to happen? is a radical change in our 
waterfront cities, and we have many in the United States, right, in urban planning, urban zoning, urban recovery. But I think what is going to happen is a completely different financing structure of sustainable infrastructure and energy transition at scale. That's what's going to come. It'll be a public-private mix. It'll be delivered by different institutions. So we are obsessed with your publicly owned private corporations, and we need to bring that into the United States. But that's what's coming. And we will shift trillions of dollars in public and private capital towards the greening of our cities. It'll be invented and then deployed probably by a small number of cities and then routinized at scale. That's what markets do. So I, I think that's coming. I think that, and, and it's partly coming, A, because it's good for the planet, and B, because a bunch of people are going to make a lot of money from this. It's that combination of green that Americans love. <laughs> and we'll come to you to respond to this question, but um, be short, because otherwise we sell less books. Uh, I made a mistake. The books are actually sold outside. So if you buy them outside for 15 pounds and then come back here to have them signed. But... And response to Herbie's question, please. Okay, I'm just going to list what should happen in 30, 40 years' times. We should save at least 50% of the energy used in all our buildings, and we should be aiming for 80% energy use saving, which would apparently uh, be the equivalent of not needing nine Hinkley Point nuclear power stations in this country. Um, Secondly, we should go all electric in cars. Um, And thirdly, we should go big on car sharing, Fourthly, we should be 100% renewable energy. Uh, We should actually focus massively on sharing, and I forgot to mention that Torino, which is one of our seven cities, is the big city for sharing, so they share old uh, Mirafiore uh, fiat factories in amazing ways for social uh, support and for social um, housing, basically. Uh, We should eat less meat. Um, I know Sophie will be pleased about that. Um, and we should reallocate space. So we've got a big ageing population in Europe, and space is very, very badly used um, because we can't deal with um, the issues of ageing. Resource use should be completely transformed. There will not be the resources to use in the way we think of it today. You know, my graph diagram uh, proves that. Um, And social will matter more because other things will not be able to matter as much. So in many ways, what you're talking about is the whole notion of the circular economy, which is the last line of the book, and I think Herbie recognizes those words. Thank you very much to the four great speakers.